please take God's word and turn to Mark chapter number 12, please. Mark chapter number 12. I may encourage you that we will finish it this morning. It seems as we have been here for some time in Mark chapter number 12, just taking in the book of Mark, verse by verse. Particularly, Mark chapter 12 seems to have somewhat drug on. By my nature, I sometimes want to take excursions and diversions for different reasons, and I wanted to in this, but we're going to persevere. It's not because I didn't want to continue to preach the book of Mark, um, but we need the whole counsel of God. And um, sometimes it can get somewhat discouraging being in a, in a passage like this for too long if you don't continually remind yourself of the positive um, aspect of truth that's being preached and taught here. And what I mean is, is that we've been in a long season here over the last several weeks and months, um, particularly um, talking about the condemnation of the nation of Israel um, and painting a very poor picture of these guys week after week after week after week. But that's the nature of the text. Well, at the same time, I've tried to encourage us in the reality of the, um, of the positive truth that's going on here. Now, this is the love of our Lord being expressed to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, to the Herodians, to the scribes, to the elders, and to the chief priests. Um, our Lord engages with these people. In part, they will harden their hearts against our Lord. Um, they will not receive the truth, and our Lord knows that. But at the same time, I was encouraged just a couple of weeks ago to meet a man who somewhat seemingly is a genuine um, pursuer of the truth. This young man, this scribe that we met a couple of weeks ago who comes with a legitimate question and asks, and our Lord just loves him, right? And um, engages his heart with the truth and proclaims the, and declares the truth of God's word and um, in some, say, in some sense, gives that gracious invitation that we talked about for his, his soul to engage with the truth of God's word and thus the, 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 the work of God um, take root in the heart of this, this young man. But that's what he's doing. He's preaching a message of judgment and condemnation, but at the same time, all throughout the Old Testament as well as in the New, in the new um, this, 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 this proclamation of, of judgment comes with a gracious invitation to repent and believe. And I am convinced that while in large part the nation of Israel is reprobate and apostate and will not receive the word of God, um, God has his people among this, um, among this group. And not only that, he's bringing people to himself among this group. Not only the disciples that are already birthed into the family of God, but also um, those disciples who under his word will submit um, to the gospel and the, Lord of, the lordship of our, our Lord and Savior, um, Jesus Christ. Thus we come up um, to the next portion of our scripture in verse number 38. If you don't mind, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. We'll spend just a moment in prayer and then we'll jump into the, the text. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 38, you read these words. Then he, speaking of Christ, said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. 
Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put more, put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, um, we praise you. You are worthy to be praised. Father, the King of glory, who created the heavens and the earth and who knit each of us, Father, in our mother's womb, but more than just flesh and blood, and gave us a soul, Father, to communicate and to relate and to interact with you. And for that, Father, we praise you because you in no way were obligated to do so. And even more than that, Father, you sent your own Son who willingly came, Father, to die a a traitor's death, a sinner's death upon our, on our behalf, Father, and to endure the wrath of God that we might be made new and whole again, Father, and better than we were, better than even Adam in his original state. Father, you did the unthinkable. Your son did the unthinkable. The Spirit today continues to do the unthinkable, Father, and bring a dead men to life. And we praise you for that and what you're accomplishing, Lord. Uh, there's a sense in which we're unworthy to even approach you. But in another sense, Father, we're more than worthy because we approach you in Christ. So let us now, Father, come boldly to the throne room of grace, God, and, and ask you to meet with us. Father, would you, um, in a mighty way, take your word, um, Father, to places that we can't go and do things with it, Father, that um, all the men in all the world with all their intellect and skill can never accomplish, Father, with um, ten thousands of years. God, would you make us alive? Lord, would you teach us? Would you lead us in your way, Father? Um, would you make our hearts to love you, Father? Would you cause us to walk in obedience? Would you transform us by the renewing of your mind, Father? Um, would we not just um, just walk in obedience today, Father, in a mechanical way, but may it be born out of the gratitude of our hearts because of the amazing grace that you continually extend to us but particularly that grace that we found in Christ. Father, we trust that this is your will. God, we think about that great promise that if we ask anything according to your will, Father, and in your name, um, that you'll do it. Man. So, Father, we, um, we pray this morning, Father, that you will melt our will to your will. You know that's not just an invitation to get anything that we please, but in some sense it is. I'm in that which pleases you. So help us, Father, to desire the things that you desire and to be pleased, Father, and take pleasure in the things that you do. And Father, it seems like a good thing this morning that the word of God would just change all our hearts. So we beg you, Lord, to do that as we stand as men, unable, weak, incapable to accomplish anything, Father, in our own strength. So let us not labor long, Father, before you convict our hearts of our need of you even as we approach this text. Father, if somebody here today doesn't know Christ, may today be the day of their salvation. May they recognize their great need of you, Father, as the law is applied to their, uh, to their heart, Father, and as the gospel um, towers over it. May they see the grace, the majesty, and the beauty of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. Um, as we mentioned before, 
Um, we continue our trek through the book of Mark, and what a journey it's been. I pray that it's been beneficial and helpful to you as a believer. I'm to glean into the, the work and the life, the attitudes, the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But just to bring you up to speed for those that are visiting with us, um, again, we pick up an account that we began some time ago. Prior to this, our Lord has spoken of, spoken of the work that He came to do. Um, when our Lord begins His ministry three years approximately prior, um, He begins to teach and to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Over that three and a half year span, um, His teaching becomes clearer and clearer and clearer up to the point now that He has taught His disciples um, with great clarity. Um, exactly why he came. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that they understand it. They won't actually fully grasp it until um, until his death and his ultimately his resurrection and his ascension. But nevertheless, um, we know the end of the story, and we understand that our Lord up to this point has has now set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. Um, he's taught his disciples that now his work is ready to be done, um, and that's to take place no other than Jerusalem. So he's traveled back. His disciples have went with him. It's around the Day of Atonement, the Passover, um, the week of it. It's a week-long festivity. Um, and what does our Lord do? Um, not necessarily take partake in the, in the activities of Passover, but he walks into that place of the Old Testament that is to be the preeminent place of God's people, that place that symbolizes um, and is literally the presence, the, 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 the location of the very presence of God that in the Old Testament He would um, dictate and He would formulate and He would organize that the people of God would build this permanent place that God may dwell with His people. Um, of course, we know that it wasn't permanent ultimately, that this was too was just a picture, a symbol, a type of that Emmanuel, God with us, who was to come, who would, who would uh, eternally uh, dwell with His people in them and with them. Um, but nevertheless, he enters in just a day previous, and we find him in that day flipping the table, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, while um, bringing, purifying the temple in a sense, not in its fullness, but in a sense, um, showing his disdain for the leaders of the nation of Israel, um, God's chosen people, and what they had done with the means of grace that God had designed to bring people to him. Self. And he says, quote, they turned it into a den of thieves. And with their greed and their lust for money and wealth and prosperity and probably a whole host of other sins, and they had turned that dwelling place of God, that place where sacrifice was to be made, the atonement was pictured, Christ was symbolized, and they had just marred it completely. You think that would have been enough for our Lord, but he determined to come back in the next day. So you can imagine the tension among the people and all the people are gathering around as the text tells us um, as he continues to teach and he continues to preach, no doubt, the kingdom of God, um, repentance and faith and, um, and, and who knows what else. And in legitimate, traditional rabbinic fashion, not only does he have a monologue, but a dialogue with many of the people. The religious leaders gather around the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and they engage in conversation with him as he's teaching and preaching, and our Lord, um, our Lord entertains. Time and time again, um, they bring statements against him, and they try to catch him with their wits, and they try to discredit his 
um, ability, his skill, his intellect um, with the word, and every time um, he lays them low, whether with an abrupt, um, an abrupt question to totally stop them in their tracks or an engagement to cause them to think and engage with the truth of God that leaves them either dumbfounded or um, or in a sense, or in a in a place to where they will not recognize the truth, even though they know the truth is right before them. Right? Many times he engages them with a question, and they know if they answer it the way that they should, and the way that they know um, that it will um, illegitimize themselves, and they'll lose power and prestige and prominence among the people around them. So oftentimes, um, our Lord leaves them silenced. The text says, where they ask him no more questions. And we looked the last time in verse 35 and we see the Lord turn the tables and begin to ask them a question um, in which it leaves them again dumbfounded and in silence. And then we pick up in verse number 38, which is very well probably um, growing out of very organically the previous passage. He just talked to a scribe and engaged this um, young man with the reality of, um, of, of, the, of the truth of God's word and the greatest commandments and then he turns and he begins to teach. Jesus teaches to the scribes and questions them. And from that statement, he brings a tremendous, um, a weighty indictment against the very men that are standing before him, these scribes. That's what it says in verse number 38. Then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes. Um, beware of the scribes. And we begin with this, in this text, a great warning for God's people, but also for those um, who are around them. This isn't just the disciples there. Um, it's a whole host of people um, within the temple. You may remember that the temple doesn't just speak of that, that structure where God dwells, but the, but the temple courts. And um, what you would find is that outside of that primary structure was, was, were multiple courts, the court of the, the Gentiles, the court of the women, um, places where strangers could come, aliens, foreigners, and worship outside the temple. And, and much activity had been going on within the outskirts of the temple. So whenever you, you hear them say that they were in the temple, you have to identify what portion it was. Were they in the, the middle place, the Holy of Holies, where God actually dwelt? Um, not here. Here it seems that they are standing on the outskirts within the temple borders, um, this, this, this place outside in which much commerce and activity of Israel um, would, would take place. It's there among the people that our Lord is teaching and preaching His Word. And here He concludes with this statement um, to um, the entirety of the multitudes. Um, because in just a moment, this is going to be His last word as far as we can tell to these people. Um, this portion is also in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 20 and 21. It's also in Matthew's. If you wanted to get a good ideal in the fullness of this sermon, I would encourage you to go to Matthew 23 and read those 36 verses in which our Lord pronounces woe after woe after woe after woe in a much more full indictment of um, the nation of Israel. That this is just a small snippet. It's hard telling how much and how long and how 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 he preached with gravity to these people. And we get a small glimpse of it right here. And what's the conclusion that he comes to, this last word that we hear um, from our Lord to the crowds before he will exit the temple and not return until he, um, not return before, as far as we know, not return before his death and, and crucifixion. It's this. He said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes. He teaches them and brings a great indictment upon them 
um, that these are a people to be avoided. Jude tells us that there are many people that need to be avoided, um, just like the scribes. Why? Because they're great danger to the church of God. That to interact with them on an intimate basis would lead us um, to possibly have our garments singed, scorched, or burnt. And Jude goes on to say that um, as a result of this, there are people within that that need to be rescued from the brand, snatched from the burning and from the fire. Who are they to beware in this text? They're, they're to beware or warned against the scribes. Mostly the scribes are made up of Pharisees. Um, a scribe could be in a, a number of religious or political parties. Scribe is just the title of an interpreter of the law, a lover of the law, legal expert. Um, oftentimes you hear this word and, and uh, you, you hear of men or read of men in the scriptures referred to as lawyers. Our idea of a lawyer, it's, 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 it's actually similar, although it was much more extensive and expressive in Judaism or in the nation of Israel. Why? Because Israel was a theocratic nation, meaning that, that, that civil law and religious law, ceremonial law, moral law, all intermingled. So what you would have is you would have these interpreters of the law, these, these men of the Old Testament who knew the Scriptures and were able to interpret the Scriptures, that these were men that the nation of Israel would go to on every account, whether it was religious, spiritual, um, civil, family, that these are men, experts, that, that the nation of Israel um, would come to. These were um, what, the, what the nation of Israel would look to as possessors of the law, gatekeepers of the truth. Um, true in religious matters, civil matters, social matters, you name it, they were informers to the people, people whom they would lean on. Their job was not only interpretation of the law, but application to it. Beware of them, he says. And just to bring the gravity of that, just imagine the statement as you're talking to a people in whom they look to these people as those who are almost standing as a mediator between God and man. These men who, are, who, who before are interpreting the prophets, the law of God, um, if they were to understand and know the will of God, they were to look to these men. It was the way that they were viewed. And you can imagine what's going through their minds when Jesus says, beware of those guys. What guys? Our shepherds? Um, our fathers? These men who are to shepherd us and to protect us and to lead us, beware of them. Imagine if somebody came to you or your children and said, beware of your father. You know, um, the one who is given to you to protect you, to, to shepherd you, to care for you, um, to disciple you, to train you. And um, you would want to know that there was some serious substance behind that statement. Um, as Jesus says and gives them a great warning to those whom were to be. Um, a tremendous intimate relationship in the, and the harbingers of truth, those who would protect it, those who would propagate it, those who would declare it, and those who would apply it to the lives of the people. In Matthew 23, verse 15, or 13 through 15, you read this statement. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of God of, of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Again, this is the fuller extent of the sermon that he's giving here in Matthew. He says, For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Same portion of Scripture here. 
Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and, and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, he says. This was a scathing sermon. Um, his final word, as far as we can tell, to the, the nation of Israel as a body, to all of the political and religious leaders, and this is his conclusion. Man, protect yourself against these men. Your protectors, your shepherd, your pastor, um, the one in whom you should be able to trust. Beware. Why? Because they're leading men astray and they're making men um, children of hell by following their teaching. What characterizes them in this warning? What characterizes them is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. External virtue. In other places, he says things like you clean up the outside of the cup, yet the inside is, is, is filthy. Your whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. You're a casket with no substance in, no life to be seen, nothing to speak of other than just filth and, and rot. And that's his argument here as well. Beware of the scribes. Why, Jesus? Why? Because they desire to go around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places in the, in the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayer. If you were to read Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 5, I believe it says there, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, that they do all these things to be seen of men. That these are men that are hypocrites at best, hence all of the woes and all of the condemnation that our Lord is going to bring about them. What does our Lord say in this text? He says they like to walk around in long robes. Doesn't seem like a great crime, does it? Not unless you, under, not unless you understand the Old Testament and what these robes were to um, commend. If these weren't just regular robes, these would have been robes that were very... Uh, they, they were, as the text says, flowing. Um, they were full-length prayer shawls with tassels attached to the four corners in contrast to the regular dress of a Jewish man. They were made of wool or linen. These blanket-like mantles, one commentator says, uh, were known and distinguished uh, among the rabbis and scholars as men of wealth and, and eminence. They were fancy. They were unique. They weren't, they weren't something that you put on and went out and done a, a day's work. It wasn't something that you got on the, the, the horse and the chariot or you went out to the farm and you, and you dug in and you worked hard with. Um, this, this was uniquely different in the nation. Now, Numbers 15 on these robes, they were instructed to put tassels on the robes to identify themselves, particularly as God's people and as men of God, to bring attention to God and attention to God's Word. But as the centuries pass from the book of Numbers, and the people in religious institutions and positions decided that these could be symbols of their own glory. So what they would do is Matthew 23 and verse 5 says is that they would make them larger and larger or longer and longer. That they would take the tassels and make them more glorious. That what God had commanded was not enough to separate themselves. They needed to separate themselves. So that when men would look, they would see these men walking in robes and immediately just they would stop the attention of the, of the people that are all around. They like respectable greetings, it says. Luke says that they love them. When a scribe would walk down the street, immediately you would recognize the robe and the long tassels and everyone would stop. At least those who were quote-unquote 
godly. Um, and they were expected to rise. Some of the Jewish writers tell us in the Talmud and the Mishnah that such a position of privilege fostered the desire to make an impression, to be greeted in the marketplaces, to have places in honor of banquets. And as they moved about in public life with their unique robes, they would be easily, uh, again, identified. And because of that, it was expected that the people would see them and they would address them appropriately with the respect that they, quote, unquote, deserved and with titles of dignity. Matthew 23 says um, that, that's the context of not, not, not calling him father or rabbi. Um, it signified in the context and the culture of the nation of Israel, it signified something more than just the, even the word um, in, its, in its origin meant. It, it took on a new meaning um, as, they, as they mingled about. It signified something of a doctoral status in the theological realm. It was like a man with a Ph.D. or five of them. And I was someone that was very knowledgeable, that had titles and, and rabbinic literature. Um, it, it would be essential on the same level saying, the great one, your excellency. This man walks through with his long tassels and men would be rising from their seats saying, most knowledgeable one, exalted one, your excellency. And that's why they were to guard against in Jesus' teaching, calling them of the swords. They love the chief seats in the synagogue, the text says. The most important seats in the synagogue, literally. It refers to the benches along the walls of the synagogues and especially um, at the front of the synagogue, which faced the congregation seated on the floor and in the middle of the synagogue. These first seats, as they were called, um, were reserved for teachers and people of rank and afforded the best position from which to address the congregation. It may, make, it may, it may bring, um, or it may reconcile over in James where he talks about um, arguing over the best seats, Right? Um, oftentimes you would even find that within the disciples they would argue over elevation and the, and the seat and the rank of privilege even among our Lord and whenever we get over into glory. Um, that this was common among, that, that the people of greater um, respect and value um, received the greatest of seats and there were particular ones um, there. Luke chapter 14 and verse 7 is one of those. They were picking out places of honor, the disciples, for themselves. They desired the best seats in the, in the banquet. Um, I, read, I listened to one man this week that made, a, a, um, I think, a legitimate comment. He said, note it. The less you have on the inside, the more you need on the outside. People who are empty on the inside need to surround themselves with things that make them feel valuable. They need the material. They need the adoration. They need the awards. They need the acclamation. They need the symbols of authority, power, prestige, so that everyone will know who they are because they need to know that they matter. And that's the truth. They need to silence the voice of unworthiness in their own souls. So they not only lie to themselves, but they coax other people into lying um, to them to help them believe the lie that they want to believe. And that's why these men, these tyrants of Israel, prefer to them, or have people refer to them to, to, to titles like Your Excellency, knowing that people really don't believe it. And guess what? They don't either. Um, they don't either. They're just trying to convince themselves of that by lying to themselves. I read in recent days of a man who abused a young woman and would have him call her him such names um, as Your Greatness and things of other. Let me listen. Now, if, if a man has to tell you to call him and refer to him how great he is, trust me, there's nothing great about that man. Um, 
But people who are full on the inside of God recognize their true worth and their true greatness in Christ. Thus, they're able to die the most content people without two nickels to rub together and nothing even to remember them by. That is, in some sense, true humility. That's why the greatest saints of old have not needed prestige and power. They've not needed buildings and accolades. They've not needed awards and people surrounding them. But these men do. These men do. They make for pretense long prayers, it says. It's fake. It's a sham. It's a show. They pray to be seen and heard. Matthew tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus stood and preached and delineated on this very thing that these type of men need to make a show. They need to stand up and they need to be lengthy. And they need Not that there's anything inherently wrong with long prayers or short prayers. It's the heart of the prayer. It's the purpose behind it. It's the reason that it goes forth. And that's why when they stand before God one day, our Lord says that, that they'll look and they'll want the accolades from Him, from God Himself, and then He'll look at them and say, um, you, you, you already have your reward. You've got it, which is the recognition of men. That these prayers were long and they were glorious and they were theological and they may have even been doctrinally correct and, and truth was there, but they did it for the purpose of being seen of men. And the longer, the better, they would argue. And the longer, the more religious. But not only that, they would devour widows' houses. You know? And like you read by that and you think, that's not, you know, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But if you stop and pause a minute, you begin to really see the depravity of these men. That they prey upon the least. These are worthless men who build their empires on the backs of of little widows and baby orphans. Those whom they are to protect, their protectors become the devourers. Their responsibility, the Old Testament is clear. The New Testament is clear. John tells us that pure religion is the cure for the widows and the orphans, as well as to remain unspotted from the world. But in the Old Testament, they wouldn't have been familiar with James, but they would have been familiar with places like Exodus 22. 22 through 24, Deuteronomy 24 and verse number 19. I'm in Exodus chapter number 22. You'll read these words, verses 22 through 24. That under the old covenant, age, this is what the people of God were to do, particularly those that led Israel. I'm Exodus 22, verse 22 through. 24, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child if you afflict them in any way. And they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with a sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. You go into Deuteronomy 24, 19 and Jeremiah 22, 3 where you read these words in Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord's do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the alien, to the fatherless, and to the widow. But what you find in the Old Testament is a tremendous love that God had for the widows and for the fatherless, for the least of these. That God cared for them in an amazing way and in a gracious way. Psalm chapter 146 and verse number 9 says, The Lord watches over the strangers those that are foreign from another land. He relieves the fatherless and the widow, it says, but the way of the wicked He turns upside down. 
Psalm chapter 10 and verse 17 says, O Lord, you hear the heart, you hear the heart, the desire, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. That what you find within the very character and nature of God is a love for the least of these. Is a love for those who can't fight for themselves. Proverbs tells us to speak up and to rescue those who are perishing and those who are dying and going to death. That there's a command within uh, the, the law of God and within that, that love commandment, that great summation of loving God and loving one another to protect those who cannot protect themselves. And um, these people come in the name of God to consume them, to devour them, literally to eat them up. How did they do that? They would take support from these little widows. They would ask for money for the widows themselves, though it was even forbidden. They would cheat little widows out of their estate while they offered them legal protection. For example, um, MacArthur goes on and says that a widow would have an estate. She wanted to secure it. She would bring it to a scribe to care for their legal work while pretending to protect the estate. They would take it. They would mismanage it, abuse the hospitality. They would often stay in the houses, eat up the food, utilize the funds, making excessive demands and steal them blind. Then they would take the house of a widow and pledge. This would, again, this is a lawyer. Now, remember, the scribes um, under Old Testament law and even in Judaism that day, they were not to take money for their, their, um, for their services. So what they would do is they would skirt around it. And they would find ways, and they would. Uh, there was somewhat of this culture that was created that it was that it was right to give um, an offering on behalf of it. But the thing is, is that many times they wouldn't unless the offering was giving, so it was paid um, for the for the service. Um, other ways that they would do it is that they would uh, take the the house of a widow and pledge for the debt that they owed for their legal services, whatever it was, whether it was um, um, uh, gathering up the estate and dispersing it in common vernacular or language. What they would do is they would say that when you die, as a result of um, as a result of my 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 work for you, then you pledge me your house. So that when the widow died, they would receive the entirety of the estate almost, because the the widow almost had nothing. Nothing would be left if she had if she had um, children. Nothing would be dispersed to them. They demanded giving in return for blessing from God. They demanded this of everyone, though. Um, what you find is that there were thirteen receptacles in the court of women, which is where we're at in the text. And there, they would drop their money, and that's how, according to some rabbis, um, you would even purchase your redemption. Thus the people would pour money into these receptacles for blessing and for salvation. And what these men would do is that they would devour these widows' houses. Josephus, um, a Roman and Jewish historian, even tells an account of a Jewish scoundrel exiled to Rome who, who affected the ways of a scribe and succeeded in persuading a high-standing woman named Fulvia to make substantial gifts to the temple in Jerusalem. And when he was caught with the embezzlement, he was banished even to Rome. That these men would come in and they would devour the, le the least of these. And you say, that happens every day. It does, doesn't it? In the world, we are a devourous people. And we eat one another up. 
What makes this so great? Not that they're simply eating each other up or preying upon the weak, but it's the quote-unquote people of God. It's those who have received the truth. It is those who have been handed the oracles, the fathers, Paul tells us in Romans chapter number 9. It is those who have been blessed beyond all other nations to be a blessing to the other nations. It is those who have the voice and the truth of God's Word who are to stand and to proclaim it among the community, the family, and even within the country. And that God's name is to be proclaimed and declared and worshipped throughout all the land. And that He is also to be displayed in character and in nature and in activity as the people of God relate to one another. So regardless of what they preach, they preach a different gospel, they preach a different doctrine, they preach a different um, truth with their life and with their practice. And that's the gravity and the weight of Matthew chapter 23. Woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you serpents, you vipers, you blind guides who devour widows' houses, who make much of nothing and don't make anything of those things which are of greater importance. And at the end of the day, you're building your kingdom and you're claiming it to be God's when you've built it on the backs of the poor and the weak and the, and the, and the, and the fatherless. Verse number 40. These will, as a result, receive the greater condemnation. The greater condemnation. That judgment will be the greatest for these people is what our Lord argues. That they will receive the greater wrath. It could be translated. Or the greater, the larger judgment. That the widow and the orphan should be above all other have been the objects of the people's compassion and their prayer because they're the objects of God's special concern. And instead, they robbed them and they left them for dead. And it's precisely because they go around in long robes and they demand the titles and because they pray that their condemnation will be more terrible, I'm convinced, than some of the most wicked men in all this world. Why? Because not only will they not go into the kingdom of heaven, they will not allow others. They lay men and women and orphans low. And that's what Matthew 23 um, says. God's, the, the, the Old Testament is very clear. God's wrath is kindled against those who take advantage, use, and abuse God's people and the weakest of these Isaiah 10.1 says, Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune which they prescribed, to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do, Isaiah says, in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, he says to the people, and where will you leave your glory? Without me, they shall bow down among the prisoners, God says, and they shall fall among the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Ezekiel sixteen forty nine. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Part of the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah was not only 
um, the homosexuality or the sexual immorality, but it was also all of the sins that come along with um, a, a, a culture of a reprobate mind in whom self becomes ultimately the God and it's manifested in a plurality of ways, one in which um, manifests itself in the carelessness, uh, in the intentional carelessness of neglecting and devouring the least of these. Thus in Matthew 23, you see woe in verse 13, woe in 15, woe in 16, woe in 17, woe in 25, woe in 27, woe in 29, woe in 33, which means condemnation or to damn or to condemn. That's the idea. And you'll see it manifest itself in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and in Luke 21 as you read of the temple being utterly destroyed um, as a result. Not stone, one stone will be left upon another. This temple in, in, in which you glory in yourself um, will no longer stand. And it's almost reminiscent of reading Isaiah chapter number 10 of when Assyria came in and took Israel captive and laid them low as a result of what they did unto the widows. Verse number 41. Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. And the one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrant. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all these who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had her whole livelihood. It's an interesting passage. You may be thinking, man, how are you going to make that transition? That sounds pretty positive, doesn't it? And it does on face value. It sounds pretty positive. What we have here within the temple, as was mentioned, was a treasury. Um, if you study Jewish literature and historians, you'll find that within the treasury, that in this temple, much of the activity of Jewish life happened. There was a depository in this temple, like many temples of ancient, in which vast amount of wealth would flow through. Within this um, treasury would have been 13 receptacles um, called the shofar um, receptacles, which means it was shaped like a trumpet. It was shaped backwards like a trumpet, so you could put in a, like a, a coin, but you couldn't get it back out because that was the smaller end, but it flowed out um, below. Um, each of the receptacles would have had um, upon it what it was for. There was, it was allocated to different funds, and, and there were some that were required, like a temple tax, and then there were some that were free will offerings. And what would happen is, is that people would come in to give, and and even in the giving, there would be a priest there and you would designate the funds to whatever receptacle that, that you desired. And the priest would even announce oftentimes um, what it was going towards. So you knew who gave the most and you knew who gave the least. You know, And what you would have is people standing on the outskirts making judgments about um, those who had much to give and those who had little to give. You can imagine um, just the separation and the tension that that caused within. I mean, just... You know, middle school bullying going on at its best. You know, who's got the better lunch um, kind of deal when you open up the lunch boxes and somebody pulls out something amazing that they bought from the store and then somebody's got just mama's sandwich. Um, and you can just imagine the, the, the middle school uh, bullying that happens on there. This was going on here. Um, you had just a, a, an explicit expression of giving that was just known to all people. Um, among a society that valued the wealth and the health and prosperity of, of the people. And what you have is 
this little woman coming with two small copper coins. And the term there is uh, lepton in the original. It means the smallest and the least valuable coins in circulation in that time in Palestine. Um, it was worth one half of a quarter of a, of a quadrants. With the, the term there, quadrants, it's a Roman coin. Um, it's a quarter of that. Um, literally, in the nation of Israel, this would have equated to one one hundred and twenty eighth of a denarius, which would have been a day's wage or about six to ten minutes of an average day's work. It was next to nothing in 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 value. And this is and what we see in this portion of scripture is that this little lady, this widow who has practically nothing, comes in and gives all that she has. Two coins, two of the lowest. You know, so two 128s are for you math scholars, one sixty fourth of a day's wage, 12 to 20 uh, minutes. And there's two views on this. There's two views that this is positive. Uh, there's one view, that, uh, one view that this is positive, one view that this is negative. And I'm going to give you probably my, my perception of this. I'll give you both, but my perception of this is that it's not actually quite as um, positive as we often think, given the borders of which it's born out of, which is devouring widows. And I'll give you the positive in the application. Um, but what I think is happening here is an illustration of a negative. That what you have is the temple men, these scribes and Pharisees, devouring a widow here. That whenever you come to verse number 43, he calls his disciples to himself and he says to them. So what you see is a change in, 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 in audience. You see he's out preaching to everyone. Beware of the scribes. This is what they do. And it's almost, a, Luke says that he looked up and he saw the widow uh, bringing forth her two mites or her two, um, or you know, her, her practically nothing um, to give it. And Jesus takes his disciples and brings them to himself to now that he's not preaching to the audience. He's now, um, he's now um, teaching his disciples. And he says, now look at that. He says that rich came and they put in much and she puts in little. And that oftentimes we'll put a positive spin on this. And I think that you can. Let's just be honest there, okay? And I'm going to give you a positive spin on here in just a moment. But I think given the context and the, and the train that's been started in passages previous um, that, 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 that we're working towards this great condemnation and woe upon the nation of Israel, I think it's kind of like this. If I, if I was teaching my sons something and then that day there was an illustration that popped up as we're out and about and I said, come here Hudson, come here Daniel. Remember earlier whenever I spoke to you about this and living for God and doing that or, or this or that, do you see that? Do you see that, do you see that picture? Do you see that that's what's happening? Um, that what I think we see here, at least in part, um, is a visual representation of the devouring of widows. As she took, they took everything that she had. You know? Like, and it can be made virtuous, and we'll make it virtuous. And, and I, I, I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's about the heart, and it's about what's being given, and it's not about the amount, and that you can give two mites, and God can use it to the glory of God to convert nations when somebody puts in $2 million and it doesn't do anything for the kingdom work. Uh, but here you don't see anything of motive. It doesn't say that she approached it by faith of the centurion. It doesn't say that she did it to love God or to love her neighbor. It doesn't give any of that. It simply pours out the data. You know, why not commend those who gave in much? You know, there were people there that gave, it literally says gave much. Gave more than they had to. It wasn't just a nominal, you know, lower than tithe. It wasn't anything. It was something to be talked about. Why not 
um, exalt them? Why are they? Uh, it, it, there's, just, there's just a contrast there. Um, there's a contrast there. That, that, and I even think that part of the reason that they tell us that she gave two coins is because she could have just given one and kept some for herself. But what she does is that she believes possibly in the system such that, um, and they take it. And they take it. I don't know if this widow was um, a convert. I don't know if this widow was you know, seeking to glorify God. I don't know if this widow was, um, you know, or trying to buy her own salvation or her own redemption because that's what they taught. That's exactly what they taught, you know. And if you go to Matthew chapter 23, which is that portion that we read earlier, you'll find the devouring of widows right in the middle of making children, um, their children, sons of hell, right? In verse number 15, you read, um, of chapter number 23, we read this earlier, but verse 13 says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are going or entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you will travel land and sea. You'll go to the ends of the earth to win one proselyte. And when, you, when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That what you may see here in this portion of Scripture, and again, I'm not going to be dogmatic. I'm just telling you what I, what, what I, I believe the context is, is pushing towards and what may be happening here. So if you come up to me afterwards and say, I totally disagree with that, amen, amen. Um, I think that that's a, for us to... To, to engage on. But I think what is happening here is, is a devouring of a widow's house. And what you see are these men in the temple taking all that she had. Imagine if we were at a health, wealth, and prosperity um, conference and my mother came who has practically nothing and they get up and they preach a false gospel. And they just, and, and, and we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that what they're going to do with that money is is buy more planes and houses and, and just, just pack their pocketbook, you know? And I, while we would commend the widow for giving for what she believes in, at the same time, we may say, Mom, what are you doing? You know? Like, don't give to that. Can you imagine him sitting there with the disciples and the application? Like, you need to give everything to God. Well, go, boys, go on and give to the temple. Don't give to that. You know? Don't give to, to these men. It's going to pad their pockets and upbuild a kingdom that is a false gospel with a false teacher. You know, um, don't commend that to them. The disciples don't go up. They don't give what they have when they had a money bag. Um, that what may be happening here is an illustration of why the condemnation and the judgment of God is going to come. Why? Because this widow comes and maybe she comes deceived and they totally consume her in which now she'll go home giving up her whole livelihood um, to die. You know, to die. To die. And there's men like that throughout the world today who are in it, just false teachers with a false gospel, just peddling on the Word of God and using Christian slang and Christian language, and they are devouring widows. You know? They're feeding on the poor. The, the, the gas in their tank is, 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 are the abortions that are happening to the, to, to the fatherless day in and day out. And they're advocating and propagating for such things and they're patting their pocket. Now, whether this means this or not, that, that's the truth. 
And that we are to, to mark those out. We are to avoid those people. We are to, we are to, to, to not risk ourselves and our children. We are to propagate the gospel to them and preach the word that God may save their souls. But at the same time, we are to tell our children and tell our churches and tell our community, beware of them. Beware of them. Like I know you want to give and, and, and that the motives may even be great and that God can use them in spite of it. Like, isn't that amazing, right? Like that God can use it. And maybe this widow was um, doing it for the right reasons. It, it very well could be um, that, that she had a right motive even in her heart. We just don't know. Could it have been that the Lord blessed in spite of the decline of Judaism, this little woman? Yes. Could it have been that she simply just didn't know where else to go because she was locked into Judaism? Yes. After all, this is what she's known her entire life. It could be. Could it be that she wasn't trying to be culpable or complying with a false religion? Yes. Could it be a slap in the face of the religious establishment who think that they are so great and the kingdom of God is so dependent upon them that Christ honors this little um, impoverished widow who literally, at the end of the story, doesn't have two nickels to rub together? Yes. It could have simply been an illustration to the disciples that they think they're giving much, and guess what? This little woman gave it all, and she's greater. That could very well um, be it. And if that's it, amen. And that's the truth that needs to be preached, doesn't it? You know, I was reading, and, and, and I'm a little leery of this because I, I love John MacArthur and I listened to his sermon and it was recommended to me years ago. And, uh, and I think he's right. But at the same time, I looked for every other commentator I could find and found not one that agreed with him. It was always positive. Maybe this is positive. You know, I read Chrysostom, an early church father, who said, therefore, as a result of this, let us not say that the kingdom may be bought with money. Yeah, because it doesn't matter about money. It's not bought with money, but rather with the unsullied intention that may demonstrate itself by means of money. Therefore, one answers, is there no need for money? Therefore, no need for money, but for Christian disposition. If you have this, you will be able to even buy heaven with two small copper coins or build up the kingdom of God. And that's true. That's the positive. This little woman may have had um, the greatest of intentions that God could use and went home and God replenished like the little widow in the Old Testament with Elijah. That may very well be it. And if so, we commend her for that and commend you as well um, to express a heart of giving, not just um, your pocketbook or change, right? I read another quote by a man who said, the treasure in one's heart is the intention of the thought from which the searcher of heart judges the outcome. Hence, it's quite frequently occurs that some persons perform good deeds or lesser importance of lesser importance with a greater reward of heavenly grace. It may very well be that what our Lord is teaching here is that those who desire to be first will be last. But even that's within the kingdom of God, not with apostates. But if that's the case, then that's, this is true. You know? And that, that, that we should undergird our giving not with... Um, the amount that we have to give, but the heart, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that the very heart of giving is the most important thing, that our inclination and intention in giving even the least amount should be born out of the grace that God has extended to us in the example of Christ, even with sacrifice at times, believing that God is able to replenish and that God will sustain even our day, this day our daily bread. Amen and amen. And this is the truth as I read the text, even though I leaned the other way. Um, man, God just melted to my soul. And it's not even about money. It's about everything else. 
how God uses the insignificant, how God uses the world's least, how God uses the unwise and the foolish, how God uses the little ones and the least of these um, to make the most of the kingdom of God. I was reminded of that as I went to this text this week, you know, and I know that most of you would agree, but do we agree in thought and practice? This is part of the application. I spent the last couple of weeks sitting before men and thinking, man, these are great men. God's done great things with them. God will probably do more great things with them. Who am I? You know? If you throw a couple pennies into the, 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 the offering plate and you think, man, I don't even know why I'm doing that. You need a lot more. You need a lot more to feed children over in Zimbabwe. You need a lot more to plant a church. You need a lot more to support a missionary. You need a lot more. You know, and I see it oftentimes in my life and I think, man, you know, who am I? I mean, what am I going to do just a small time preacher? You know, maybe you're thinking that as a father or as a, as a mother or as a husband or as a wife or as a businessman or as this or as that. And you're thinking, man, I, like, what can I do? I look at other mothers, I look at other fathers and they seem like God's blessing. And, what, you know, it's, it's easy for us to get into the mentality to think that we know what God can do with so little. Or what God does with much. We get into a business model, a CEO mentality, and think, man, if God's going to propagate this church, we have to have so much money in the bank, or we have to do this, or if we're going to plant churches, or we're going to uh, send out missionaries, then we have to have some kind of foundation that we can explain from a business model that this thing's going to work. And sometimes you just got to give it all. You know, sometimes you just got to trust the Lord that if he, He's called us to plant churches and He's called us to send out missionaries and He's called us to reach this world with a gospel beginning at Kingsport, Bristol, and Johnson City, sometimes the greatest sacrifice is simple, joyful, willful obedience. And when everybody looks at you and says uh, and laughs from the outskirts because of the little lunch that you have, God takes it and just extends it to the end of the earth. You know, that's the God we serve. And if God wanted to take two copper coins and six minutes of a day of just, of just joyful work and labor of a little widow and convert the nations, then to God be the glory. And that's exactly who gets it in that instance and in that moment. And that's us. Like you look around and you wonder whether this thing's going to go another week or not. You, know, you wonder what God's going to do. And I'm just reminded time and time again as I come to the Scriptures that God begins with just 12 ragtag men, one who's an unbeliever, one who is just arrogant as can be, and the rest probably don't have a clue what they're doing for the first three and a half years. And it's not until faith is instilled in them through the resurrection of the Christ that has imparted the power and the faith to believe that, that they serve a God who extends beyond the nature and the creation of this world. And that they believe God for big things and they pursue God for big things. Why? Because God is a big God and that's how He gets the glory. That's why He chooses not many mice. Wise. That's why he chooses not many strong. That's why he chooses not many intellectual. That's why he chooses men and women who will just commit themselves to raising their children and leading their family and, and standing behind pulpits and lecterns who will simply be faithful to the Word of God. And that's the people today that are reaching the world with the gospel. And that's why churches are being planted in Africa. That's why the under church, uh, underground church in China is thriving right now under persecution. That's why um, a, a man in Afghanistan calls back this week to, to heart cry and tells Paul Washer a, a couple of weeks ago um, and says, I know that you want to extract men. That may even be possible. But these men need the gospel in Afghanistan. And I'll stay. 
I'm going to stay. I'm going to finish out my life. Like, who does that? You know? Who does that? Men who know God. What he's able to accomplish. And how he's able to use simple, willful, joyful, faithful obedience and take what the rest of the world looks at and says, <laughs> and laughs and scoffs. And he does the unthinkable. Listen, man, God will do the unthinkable with just your day-to-day labor in the Word. Go to your children. Tell them the gospel. And when it doesn't seem good enough, go again. You know, teach them the Word. I know that it doesn't seem like a tentilating um, uh, study to begin at Genesis and, and walk through your children to Revelation, but, but be faithful. Trust God that He's able to take the little bit that you have every single day and go to the very depths of your heart and make these little ones clean. Like He did it with us. I know it seems hard, ladies, to raise your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and you measure yourself by everybody else. And you wonder if it's even worth it. You know? know that it is. Know that God loves those little ones. Know that God loves the least of these. And know that God desires for them to come. And that oftentimes He uses mothers as, 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 as little and as, 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 as it may seem, and as insignificant as it may seem, some of those, those faithful moments where you just hold them and you correct them and you discipline them and you encourage them and you instruct them are the most meaningful moments in life because those are the moments that you've submitted to God and you've trusted Him to use little things, two mites if it is, um, and I understand that the whole premise of what I'm preaching, I'm, I've argued against, but maybe it's true. And if it, I know it's true that it's supported throughout all the rest of Scripture. And this is what Paul preaches, and this is what Paul teaches. So be faithful. Be faithful. This is what this text teaches us. And this text also teaches us to guard against hypocrisy and the pretense of religion. I have a whole column here for the next 30 minutes, <laughs> I could, about false teachers and false preachers. J.C. Ryle, and I won't, I won't go into it, I promise. The food is waxing cold. Um, J.C. Ryle, though, says in his commentary, of all the sins into which men can fall, none seem so exceedingly sinful as false profession and hypocrisy. This is what we learn from this text. And that's true, isn't it? Out of all the sins in all the world, our Lord doesn't rail upon any nearly as much as He does religious hypocrisy. And this is the nature of the world. This is the nature of religion. This isn't a 21st century phenomenon or anomaly. This has been the testimony of God's people and the church and the world all throughout the ages. This has been a danger to all of us. It's a danger to me. I'll just be honest with you. It's a danger to come this morning in all of our religion and all dressed up in all of our trappings and never worship God at all. Right? That we are to guard against utilizing the means that God has provided for us to know Him for our own power, for our own prestige, for our own prominence, for our own wealth, and for our own prosperity. The men and women who use it for that are in the opinion of Christ the lowest of all and the most basis of not even animals, but the most primordial of oozes of which they will receive the greater.
condemnation. But they're not inherently what we're worried about this morning. Anyway, I'm not. Because we may look at those false teachers and that false gospel and we may look at um, why we, who we are and what we're doing and, and all of that and think, man, that's not me. Don't fool yourself. On many days, it's all of us. Matthew 7, 1, you probably know very well. It's, the, it's uh, America's favorite verse today. Judge not lest you be judged. It's the new John 3.16. It's the one that everybody spouts and quotes. Let me read the rest of it for you. Judge not lest you be judged, for with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how do you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye, hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's easy for us to sit here this morning and cast out judgment upon false teachers and the rest of the world when our Lord says, be careful because the judgment by which you judge, you will be judged. And while it's a harsh judgment, I think the call for me as I prepare for this sermon and I think through it and I process the application is, is yes, call out false teachers, mark them out. They're devouring widows and they need to be made known. And may God protect our people and our children from people like that. So, so yes, mark them out. But before you do that, maybe the greatest need is for you to simply look in the mirror. Maybe that's the need, right? Maybe that's the great need for us. Before we cast condemnation upon another person or even pronounce judgment or preach against, maybe we should look at the hypocrisy of our own hearts. Maybe it's a far greater need for pastors today to stop and to take a look in the mirror because of the position itself lends itself to arrogance and pride. And listen, that's what's hard about the passage. I'm here, the passage, I'm here. You're here. I'm here every week. Writing sermons, I'm preparing for counseling, I'm organizing a service, picking songs and scriptures to read, I'm praying, sometimes long prayers, sometimes long sermons. Some days it seems practically impossible to be alone with God in a room full of men. Do I truly worship God? To commune with Him as if I was alone in my office, just me and Him, do I pray like that? Do I preach like that? Do I prepare sermons like that, that there's an audience of one? And the honest question, our answer is no, not most days. Oftentimes I write through things and I think this person will think that or they'll do that. And I have to guard myself against a pretense of trying to please men and a pretense of trying to put on a show. Why? Because we are all, by nature, self-deceivers. And even with our good deeds, um, can do more damage than good because we do it to exalt self, to get amens, to get pats on the back and to promote um, self. May God lay us low that he may exalt us in due time where we can shed off any semblance of self that he may receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. I am begging for the day when I preach a sermon just for him. And I pray just that I might be heard. You know, I sat with my girls this week under the preaching of God's word and one just nestled up to me and looked up at me. I thought she didn't, she didn't do that any, for anybody else but me. I know it. 
She didn't care if the people behind her saw. I did. In my own heart, I thought, man, maybe somebody will see that and think I'm a great father. And I had to repent from a sermon that God preached to me there. I'm always looking around, thinking about what others will think. And I thought, I prayed for her. I thought, God, give her a love for her father in heaven like she has for me. You know, where she doesn't care what the rest of the world thinks. She's not laboring um, to please the naysayers or the people who say this or the people who say that. Just, just help her, Father, look to you without a care in the world, with a smile that just shows that you're the great desire of her heart. God, give her a greater love for you than she has for me. And I said, God, give me a greater love for you than a greater love for myself. It's such a battle. Maybe we need to get off of the pulpits and the lecterns about everything that's going wrong in the world and recognize that hypocrisy finds its root in ourselves. And we need Christ. He's the remedy. He's the solution. He's the only He's the only way that a man in Afghanistan could say, you could call him and say, I've got to weigh out. And he says, no. Oh, it's the only way that a widow could take two mites. If, again, if that's the case, it's the only way that you could end this world and give up everything and walk out with absolutely nothing and with a smile on your face is to be totally content with who Christ is, with the glory of God, with the power of the Spirit, and say that I have no regrets. And I'm convinced that the only way that that'll ever happen is for us to see Christ and to see Him crucified and to see Him resurrected and to see Him in all of His glory and to see Him in all of His majesty. That the goal here today is not for us to leave and to think, man, we need to take care of the orphans and the widows and I need to do better, but that we may see Christ in all of His glory and all of His beauty and all of His majesty, that we leave different people than we came, not simply doing different things, but we are doing different things because we are different people. Because when we sit under the presence and in the presence of Christ, He changes us from one glory to the next. That I am not merely to express joy, but to be a joyful person. And I am not so only supposed to, to love my neighbor, but to be a loving neighbor. That I am, uh, the, the great quandary of today is not that I am not obedient enough, it is that I do not love Christ enough. That's the great sin of all the world. That's why they're disobedient. That's why we wake up day in and day out and we pursue ourselves. That's why. God, give us a love. God, show us Christ. God, God, just melt our hearts as we study through um, the, the, the crucifixion of Christ and, and, the, and, and the wrath that was bore on our behalf, the sin that put Him there, Father. Let me see that. And let me see Him in all of His glory and all of His righteousness and all of His splendor as He rises on that third day and as He, as he, as he ascends to the highest of heavens, Father. Let me see that. Let my little girl see that. May that what she, be what she's pleased with. Father, and then I'm convinced. Then we'll go. Then we'll go. A widow will be of an immeasurable value. How in the world could you ever devour that? The little ones at the abortion clinic, the, uh, all of the, the, the injustices that are going on in the world, um, the, there is no doubt in my mind that when that happens and we see Christ in all of His glory, we understand the holiness of God and the grace that He's extended, um, that, that it will just be regular practice for us as individuals, as families, and as a church to just care for the widows and the orphans. You know, We've got this, 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 this life fund for $10,000, you know, $10,000 in it, and there's more to be had, you know, just waiting for, for, for somebody to, to, to adopt a 
child or for to give us a child, you know, at the, at the abortion clinic. I'm, I'm just waiting to, to just drain that thing, you know, and refill it up so that we can be an example, you know. Um, Nathan goes to Bible study too on a week on a weekday um, and spends time with young men from our public schools um, who don't have fathers and some of them don't have mothers, man. And I think, why aren't we there? This is why we're not there. You know, why aren't we out there? And, and, I, and I, I try to think through the mechanics and how can I, I get people out there? How can I get myself out there? You know, and I'm just like, I don't love you enough. Father, give me more love for your son. Father, show me your glory that I may be different. Because it's not enough to go. Like we must be. God, make us. Shape us. Like mold us into your very image that we would not build up some other kingdom um, in which one day your judgment will fall and it'll be greater than all of the murderers, all the pedophiles. You, know, that's it. you look here and you see the, the destruction of the temple next week. And um, man, it's a historical tragedy. Um, but it's a little picture into what God thinks about our religion and our hypocrisy. May God protect us from that as he shows us his son. Let us see his son. Let us see his son. If there's one of you here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ, I beg you to go. I would be remiss or a negligent preacher to think that um, somebody here is not like this, carrying on in religious hypocrisy with a charade and a garment that's all dressed in white, and you're nothing more than whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. And that's not to say anything negative about you. That's to say Christ died to save you from that. Just like he died to save me from that. And that if you'll come, he'll receive you openly and gladly, and he'll make you, and he'll love you, and he'll be with you um, all the way through the rest of your life. Church, um, let us preach against this, but also let us preach against ourselves and declare the truth of God to ourselves before we're ready to cast anybody under the bus. And more than that, let us cling to Christ as he makes us more like himself and makes us men who will um, just be faithful in the little things that he may receive the glory and not us. I, I look around today and I think, man, I don't know why you're here. Um, it's got to be God's work. I'm hoping to look at my children one day and, and say, God, I don't know why you blessed me so much other than you just wanted the glory, so I'll give it to you. So I don't know why you saved all my children. I'm looking for that conversation with God. I don't know why you saved them all, Lord. You made some of them missionaries and you made some of them carpenters and you made some of them plumbers and they're just doing it all to the glory of God. I don't know why, God, I was so insufficient. but I really do know why, so you'd get the glory. Just help us to be faithful. As a church, just help us to be faithful, not to do the great things that the world is or, 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 or exampling our model after other people or other things or other ministries. God, just help us to be faithful. Just help me to preach faithfully week after week, Lord. Just help me to be the man that you desire me to be. Pray for me that I would, and I'll pray for you that you would. Let's pray. God, we love and thank you and praise you for the glorious nature of your kingdom. God, we thank you that, um, that this kingdom, the only necessary requirement is to be a sinner <laughs> saved by grace, Father. 
We know that you call us to faith and repentance, so help us to believe, Father, and to repent of our sins even this day. Father, we thank you for the glorious grace in your Son, Father. We look at these men in the text, or I look at these men, I don't want to speak for anybody else. Father, and oh, how I see myself. God, would you rid me of myself and my love for me? God, it's so expressive every day. Would you show me Christ and all of his glory? Would you change me, Lord? I'm not questioning my salvation, Father. I don't think that I'm not of you. I know I am, Father, and that's why I ask these things. Because I know you. I know you do things like this. You glory in it. And Father, by your grace, help me when you do give victory over certain things to just give you the unbridled glory. The same with our church, Lord. Help us to simply be faithful. Help us, Lord, to utilize whatever means you have provided for each family and us as a whole church to just use for the glory of God. Help us not to sit on a mountain of wealth to protect ourselves, but help us, Father, to invest it in the kingdom of God, recognizing that if I leave this world with nothing and I have Christ, then I've gained it all. God, help me to love my children that way, the way that you've loved me. God, give me love for you. That's unparalleled because you're unparalleled. God, give me just a few moments which I prepare a sermon or I pray seek the Lord, Father, simply for you. While the world may see, they're not the reason. You are. God, we need that. I need that. I'm going to carry on, Father. I cannot go without you. And I know your promise to go with me. So let's go. Father, help me and help us to be faithful and believing in Christ all along the way. It's in his name we pray. Amen.